Alright, so I had just graduated high school. I was hanging out with some friends. We were just chilling at the McDonald's. Five of us. Eating our little hamburgers and french fries. And then we see these two girls come to the window. And they start staring at us all excited. Uh, like, that's kind of strange. And then more people come up. 10, 20, 30. And they're looking and pointing. And we're like, what are these people up to? See, it wasn't really unusual for white folk to point and stare at the five black dudes, but these people weren't even frowning. It was like they were giddy. And then the two girls, they come up. They're kind of shy, really nervous. You can hear them whispering, which one's Bobby? Which one's Ralph? They get to the table and say, we love you. Can we have your autograph? Bobby, Ralph, autograph, what? They think we're a new addition. So you know what happened next. I took their pen and their paper and I started signing autographs. Which much love, because you're my candy girl, Bobby Brown. Well, today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, it wasn't me. Stories about the wrong person at the wrong time, about people who think they are something they are not, and folk who swear they were never there in the first place. My name is Glenn Washington, and today on the show, we're going to kick it off with a story about, about a good rabbi who moves from New York City to Lincoln, Nebraska, and discovers a man who really ends up being more than he thought he was. I was uh, married to uh, Julie, and we went out there uh, together. The culture is really different than the East Coast. Uh, it's a little slower, and people are more reticent in that part of the country. But overall, it's a really pretty nice place to live, and I, I really didn't have any cultural adjustment to make. Julie and I had purchased a house, and we were moving into uh, the house and unpacking one Sunday morning, and we had a... Uh, a call from an unknown person. I picked up the phone and said hello. And he said, um, You'll be sorry you ever moved into that house, Jew boy. And uh, I did call the police and, and told them that I had received this threatening call. And uh, a few minutes later, a patrol car showed up and a police officer took a report. And he said that he thought he knew who might be behind it and uh, mentioned the name Larry Trapp. Larry Trapp had been uh, notorious in the community as a white supremacist, uh, hateful person. The police gave us instructions in a way, which was pretty troubling. They said, you know, tell your kids not to go back and forth to school in the same pattern. And a couple of days later, we received a package in the mail filled with about 50 or 60 items of racist material brochures, white power organizations, and there was one picture I remember in particular of Dr. Martin Luther King with a gun sight imposed over his forehead, and the caption was, our dream came true. I think the most chilling of all, there was a business card in that package that was a Ku Klux Klan business card that had on the back of it, the Ku Klux Klan is watching you, scum, and that was pretty scary. So I called the police again, and they came and took all this material and confirmed that they thought it was Larry Trapp. After a while, I started thinking that it might be a good thing to try to contact him. And so uh, I got his phone number from a friend of mine who worked for the phone company. Uh, my plan was to see if he would talk to me. Maybe some good could come of it, or maybe I could just get it off my chest and say, leave my family alone. I dialed his number. When I called, I got an answering machine, and the, uh, the answering machine had a uh, anti-ethnic diatribe against Asian people. And it just went on and on and on about how the Asians are just ruining America and they don't deserve any better than the blacks and uh, the Jews and all of that. And uh, it was disgusting. And then I decided, well, I'm just going to call and leave messages for him. And I became, uh, I guess, a little bit uh, obsessed with the idea of contacting him. And so I'd call 
And when it said, um, you've reached the Ku Klux Klan, white power, if you're interested in membership, leave your number. And, and I would leave a little message, which I started calling love notes. One message was, Larry, there's a lot of love out there and you're not getting any of it. What's wrong with you? And I hang up. Another was, uh, why do you love the Nazis so much? They would have killed you first because you're disabled. Larry Trapp was a double amputee as a result of advanced diabetes at a young age, who lived his life in a wheelchair. After several months of calling, I, I realized that I was doing a pretty strange thing. I called every Thursday afternoon at about 3 o'clock. I had appointments with children for bar mitzvah lessons at 3.30, and so I called just before that. After a while, I think Larry Trapp figured out who was calling him. And finally, one day, Larry answered the phone, and he started yelling and screaming at me. Why are you calling me? You're hassling me. I can't say what he said for a family radio program, but I said, I don't want to hassle you, Larry. I just want to talk to you. And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I heard you're disabled. I thought you might need a ride to the grocery. And there was a dead silence for a long time. He finally came back on and said, um, I've got that covered. Don't call me anymore. This is my business phone. And uh, Larry Trapp still kept getting calls from me at 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon for another couple of months. And finally, on a Saturday evening, the phone rang. I picked up the phone, and, and he said, Is this the rabbi? Is this the rabbi? And I said, uh, Yes, it is. Is this Larry Trapp? And he said, Yes, it is. I said, what can I do for you? He said, I want to get out of what I'm doing and I don't know how. And I said, would you like to talk about it? He said, yes. I said, well, I'll come over. I know where you live. So I hung up. My son said, Dad, you can't go and see this guy. I said, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to pick up some chicken or something and go break bread with the guy. He said, you can't do that. When a Nazi wants to have you over for dinner, he means it literally. <laughs> but I did call a friend of mine before going, and he said, what are you, crazy? It could be an ambush. I said, look, if you don't hear from me by midnight, send the police. Do you know what I mean? And Julie and I got in the car, and we drove to his house and uh, knocked on the door. And he opened the door. He's sitting in a wheelchair with a Mac-10 automatic weapon in his lap and a shotgun hanging off the corner of the wheelchair and a pistol in his lap as well. And I said, oh my God, we're dead. But instead, he reached out his hand and I shook his hand and he burst into tears. And he began taking these rings off his fingers and they were two swastika Nazi rings. And he handed them to me and said, take these away, they've caused me nothing but trouble all my life. And we talked and talked about what he had been doing and why he wanted to get out of it and the uh, sort of childhood he had had. Hiding under the bed so his father wouldn't beat him, which I'm convinced brought him to where he was in this hateful business. A constant tale of violence and racism and hatred and bigotry. He was doing this to try to make himself okay with his father who was that kind of person, but he did it with a vengeance. I mean, he had gotten himself elevated to a position of authority within the Ku Klux Klan. He was called the Grand Dragon of Nebraska. Strange. So Larry Trapp uh, determined that he was going to live a different way that night. And um, he asked me to take away all this literature and paraphernalia that he had around the house. Larry Trapp, he was not very old, but he had been sick a good part of his life. And he wasn't feeling very good one day, and he uh, was beginning to have kidney failure. Uh, Julie said, you know, maybe uh, we shouldn't abandon this guy, you know? And he's all alone in that apartment. What do you think about inviting him to come live with us? And so we moved him into uh, what had been our daughter's bedroom, and he was still functioning, you know, he was still living but living like with a family. Uh, Julie actually took care of him. Uh, she gave up her job in order to take care of Larry Trapp, who needed some care and attention. It was uh, an unusual time, to say the least. During that time, Larry Trapp started bugging me about wanting to become Jewish. And I said, well, Larry, come on, you grew up a Catholic. Why don't you just go to church? And he said, no, 
I had a miracle in my life and it came from Judaism. I said, no, Larry, it came from you. I had friends in the Christian ministry and I tried to palm him off on them, you know, and uh, Larry kept insisting he wanted to study Judaism. Well, we did have a ceremony uh, of conversion at the synagogue, which Larry had been attending, by the way. He adopted Judaism lived the rest of his life in my house until one morning at about three o'clock he died. He lived in that house for nine months. It's almost like he went through that whole cycle of uh, birth again and he died a better man than he lived. I was happy for him. His funeral took place at the uh, temple filled with mourners because Larry had done a lot of work in that nine months to try to make amends with people. And he was on the phone constantly calling people and apologizing and telling them he's sorry he hurt them. He spoke several times at the high schools against racism and he became a better kind of celebrity than he had been before. I felt like a member of the family had died. I think everybody in my family felt that way. You know, like everybody has a weird old uncle. He, he had become that guy in my family, you know, and well-loved. Thank you, Rabbi Weiser, for sharing this story. The good rabbi now heads up the Free Synagogue of Flushing, where he continues to teach tolerance. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman, Rita Daniels, and Renzo Gorio. Now, sometimes you don't know yourself, and sometimes someone doesn't know you. One of our favorite artists, Chaz Jackson, came to the Stamp Studios and told a story about a recent ride home. The club had just let out and I was everyone's designated driver. As we all climbed into my yellow Toyota, an old man plopped down in my passenger seat. The look on my face must have been priceless because my friends were in the back seat in hysterics. Now when an old person does anything out of pocket, you excuse them. They've paid their dues and can pretty much get away with anything. Now, I wasn't afraid of the man. Me and two of my friends were well over six feet and our homegirl never went anywhere without pepper spray. So safety wasn't an issue. I was willing to allow the old timer to realize his error and be on his way. When my friends stopped laughing, I asked the man, sir, can I help you? And I will never forget what came out of his mouth. 51st and Telegraph. I had to make sure I wasn't hearing things. I said, what? He repeated himself. 51st and Telegraph. This old man had confused my car for an actual taxi cab. My friends were egging me on. Oh, Chaz, you have to do it. Yes, please give this man a ride home. This is going to be awesome. What the hell? I started my engine as the man began to clear his throat. <clears> throat> These young girls at the disco ain't built like they used to be. They used to care about themselves and what people thought about them. They wouldn't be caught dead leaving the house half naked, half hanging all out. Nowadays, they might as well show up in their undergarments. I nodded my head, but it didn't matter, because the old-timer never turned to face me. His head was slumped over in his chest as if it were too heavy to hold upright. My friends and I didn't even want to breathe too loud. I come to these bars to spend my social security check. You know them people send me a check every month. My wife wouldn't approve of me drinking all week like I do. Curious, I asked him, Where is your wife? She's at Jefferson Memorial, plot 318. I'm plot 319, but I'm part vegetarian, so I got a lot more life to live. You know when I first met Elise, she smoked. She was too classy to throw back the bottle and... Even though I never smoked a day in my life, I'd catch the rings of smoke she blew with my mouth. That always made her smile. And I lived on the edge of her smile. I could get that woman a smile out of her misery. But when her cough got worse, I suggested she lay off the smokes. But that made her frown. And I wanted that smile back. So I bought them, and she smoked them. And she coughed. Coughed all the way over to her grave at Jefferson Memorial. 
I miss my Elise. And even though I hate these young girls don't wear more clothes, I love watching them smoke and smile. I slowed my car at the corner of 51st and Telegraph. Is this you right here? I asked, pointing to the old Victorian home. Yep, that's me. Are you going to be all right? My granddaughter looks after me. She's a nurse. I rolled down my passenger window to make sure the old timer made it inside okay. How much I owe you? He asked, still convinced my Toyota was a taxi. I tell him, nothing, it's on the house. He turns around and for the first time all night looks up at me with ocean-colored eyes, looks at my friends in the back seat, then back at me and says, Who the hell are you? We all laugh as I drove off. Many thanks to Chaz Jackson. His story was produced by Snaps, Pat, and C.D. Miller. This is the It Wasn't Me episode. It was not me. And as you may or may not know, there is no better place in all the land to be someone who you are not supposed to be than the city of angels, Los Angeles. At least, that's the case when your name is Bob Gray. My name is Bob Gray. I uh, moved to Los Angeles after living in Ohio for seven years. And shortly after I moved here, I ended up getting a, a new cell phone number. And to my surprise, I started getting all these weird text messages like, Hey, knucklehead, or I saw you on TV at the Twins game. I saw your stuff on TMZ, bummer. I thought, TMZ? Whose number did I get? So I called the guy who texted me back. I found out whose number it was right away. And he told me who it was. He's a very famous comedian and actor who's, you know, kind of connected in the inner circle of Hollywood. If you are what you say you are, a superstar, then have no... Honestly, at one point, I thought about getting rid of the phone number because I was just getting inundated at all hours of the day and night, three in the morning, drunk guys calling me, Hey, it's Barry with the Manischewitz. I didn't reply to any of the messages at first, uh, my girlfriend and I were driving to dinner, and we were on Sunset Boulevard, and I got a text message that said, Hey, hun, it's my birthday party. Big party up in the hills. I want you to come. Love, Paris. So I looked at my girlfriend, and I said, How many Parises do you know? That's hot. I go, yeah, let's text her back. Let's have some fun with this. So we texted her back, Yeah, baby, I'd like to come to your party, but do me a favor. Put Bob Gray on the list. He directed that Bigfoot movie. And Liza Foster, she's in it too. And send the address. A half hour later, the address showed up. I was totally ready to get up to the hills. Uh, Liza, I think, was a little more nervous because, you know, this is Paris Hilton. There's bound to be security. And so we head up into the Hollywood Hills, and we're passing these Maseratis and Porsches. And I was in a Dodge minivan with Ohio plates. <laughs> I got big money. I drive big cars. Everybody know me. It's like I'm a movie star. And there's security on the street. And we pull up to the gate of this gigantic mansion. I mean, it was just gigantic. And security comes up to me, and the guy looks at me and goes, Who the heck are you? And I go, Who am I? I'm Bob Gray. He's like, Hang on. He rolls his eyes, and he goes off to check the guest list, and he comes back, and he's like, Yeah, you're on the list. And now I'm cocky, so I hop out of the, the minivan, I toss him the keys and go park it. And we go in there, and this place is just palatial with fire and waterfalls and girls dancing behind smoke glass. And, I mean, the place was big. Her birthday party was a Moulin Rouge-themed party. Kathy Griffin was there. Little Wayne was also at that party. And right in the middle of the whole place is Paris Hilton. And so I tell Liza, let's go say hi to her. So we go up and... She gives us both a hug, and you know we introduce ourselves. You know, I never misrepresent myself. I never tell anybody I'm a different person than who I am. We're we're just you know Bob and Liza from Ohio. And she goes, "Where's the guy?" And I looked her dead in the eye, and I go, "You know, I never know where the hell that guy is." So we ended up doing shots with Paris till 4:30 in the morning.
and it was after that evening that I knew that this phone was a powerful weapon. I am very excited about possibly living the life of a celebrity. Yeah, I've got a bunch of famous numbers in my phone. I've got, uh, well, Paris. Yeah, Tom Brady called me one night. I think I confused him, but, uh, you know, I've got his number now. Kevin Nealon sent this guy a text one night and said, hey, can you do seven minutes at the Laugh Factory? Let me know. I didn't want to mess this guy's business up, so I called up Kevin Nealon. I said, hey, you got the wrong number. I told him the story. He started laughing. He goes, well, do you want to do the seven minutes at the Laugh Factory? It's tomorrow. I'm like, no, no, that's short notice, Kevin. I appreciate it. Anyone that calls, I always say, tell the guy to call me. I'm saving his messages. I tell all every friend, if you've got another number on him, so one night, I was out, and Adam Sandler calls my phone. I tell Adam Sandler the story, and he's just, Oh, Bobby, this is hysterical. I can't believe you got into Paris's party. I'm going to tell him to call you, Bobby. You're a good egg. So a week later, I'm driving down the road, and my phone rings, and the voice on the other end goes, So how does it feel to be living my life? And it's the guy. It's the guy. And I go, dude, I've been waiting for you to call me for three months. He goes, yeah, yeah, Sandler told me to call you. He says, you're saving all my messages. I go, yeah, man, I've got them. So him and I have chatted uh, a few times. The second Paris party, I got myself invited and then called him up and I said, hey, uh, you know, you got invited to another Paris party. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know about that. And I said, well, can I go? And he was like, oh, man, you can't be going to all my parties. And I said, well, too bad, I'm going. And he's like, what? I go, yeah, if i got to be your secretary and take your calls at 3 in the morning, I'm going to some parties. And he's like, oh, all right, let's have dinner. <laughs> of course, of course. Bob is now in talks to write a film and a TV show about this experience. Big thanks to the L.A. Times for their help on this one. The story was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, when we return, we've got big mistakes, switcheroos, and a teacher almost everyone can get behind. When Snap Judgment, the It Wasn't Me episode continues, stay tuned. back to Snap Judgment, the It Wasn't Me episode. We're exploring stories today about people who, for whatever reason, have fallen into shoes that are not their own. Long-time listeners to Snap know that there's stories everywhere you look. The taxi driver, the hairdresser, that dude next to you on a flight. And our next story, it started when a young writer took notice of the man next to her at a bar. She discovered their lives had been woven together years before they were even born. We've changed the names to protect identities. I was a student at the University of Oklahoma, and it was a weekend, and I was going to meet my roommate, and we were going to go see a band. She was working at the bar, and so I just sat there and ordered a margarita and waited for her to get off. I see this guy in his late 40s, which doesn't seem old to me now, but at the time, I, I was still at the age where I thought anyone over 25 was, you know, appallingly old, so I didn't pay any attention to him until I saw his lighter. He lights a cigarette with a Zippo that has the Ranger insignia on it. My dad was a Ranger. 
Rangers are a special ops combat unit and they're less than 1% of the army, so it's, it's a relatively small group. I point at his lighter. I just said, my dad was a ranger. And he said, what was his name? And I told him. He was very shocked. He snapped his head around and he repeats my dad's name and uh, looked away from me for a minute. Once he had absorbed my dad's name, he finally turns around and he said, yeah, you, you look like your mom. And that's right, I do. It turns out he knew my father. He said his name was Joe Trevor. Then he went on to tell me this story. In the late 60s, during the height of the Vietnam buildup, my future dad was a young lieutenant training to deploy to Vietnam. He had just married a little blonde, someday to be my mother, and he wanted to take her to Houston to meet his mother, so he asked Lieutenant Trevor to substitute for him in a war games exercise my father was scheduled to lead. Lieutenant Trevor agreed to do it, and my father and mother headed down the highway, about to have a major family meeting, and uh, while they were doing that, Lieutenant Trevor took his soldiers. All right, man, we have a war simulation exercise today. Then they checked out dummy ammunition and headed out in a mock ambush. They, they opened fire as they were supposed to. And somehow Lieutenant Trevor's gun received live ammo and before he caught it, he killed, really killed, two American soldiers. I know it's not your dad's fault exactly, but I hate him anyway. Trevor never recovered from the trauma of taking those lives. I think he had this feeling that if it had been my father who had been handed that same gun, it would have been my father who killed those soldiers and, and not him. Lieutenant Trevor was court-martialed. When I met him, he was working at a liquor store in Oklahoma and sold beer cozies out of the back of his pickup truck. My father had had a long, full military career and had just retired, so there was definitely the sense that my father's career as well as personal life had been contingent on not being the guy to have taken that shift on Fort Sill that night. I called my dad, and he was very surprised, and he really had been uh, good friends with this guy. There was part of him that was very curious about his friend and, and wanted to know how he was, and I asked him if he felt guilty, and he told me he felt terrible for the guy. But guilt, not really, because it was Trevor's job to check the equipment and to make his soldiers check theirs. It's standard operating procedure, and Trevor was a sharp guy, but that night, he just screwed up. I guess if I feel guilty for anything, it's knowing that those soldiers would be alive if I'd been on duty because I would have caught the mistake. But you can't second guess life like that. I didn't know. After I met Trevor, I saw him in the bar uh, again a few times. I, I would go in and wait for my friend and, and he would be there sitting there watching uh, a football game. And uh, one time I told him hello and that my dad said hi. I had my roommate send him a, a big margarita and he received it and lit up his cigarette with a ranger lighter and we didn't really have anything to say to each other. My father hadn't been able to control what happened and, and neither had poor Lieutenant Trevor, but their fates were intertwined in a way that neither one of them would have chosen. Johnson Squires is the author of Along the Watchtower, a rock and roll novel about growing up army. We'll have a link on stampjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman and Pat Masidi Miller. Some mistakes are costly. Some cost more than others, and that's all well and good, but what happens when someone else pays for your sins? Anna Sussman brings a remarkable tale from Richmond, California. Aaron Owens was a small-time criminal. He pushed drugs and stole money. 
he had a pretty long list of nonviolent crimes on his record. But, he says, he never did anything that would really hurt another individual. Nothing violent. That's why he never saw this coming. I was driving down the street. I was listening to music, feeling good about myself, never even thinking that this was going to take place. And it was about, I guess, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you know. He pulled me over, and when, the, when he put the red lights on me, I noticed the, the, there was a difference in the way that they had was pulling me over. Well, they wind up with a thousand policemen around me. and, and They took Aaron to county jail. I was standing at the window of the jail. I looked down, and my wife had pulled up outside. And she's crying, and she said, have you heard what is going on? And I said, no. And she said, they're charging you with two murders, you know. And I, I laughed. I, said, I just laughed at her. I said, I said, go on home. I said, don't even worry about that. Now, then somebody's just pulling your leg. Somebody has their wires crossed. I knew I hadn't killed anybody. John Taylor, a young, eager lawyer for the district attorney, was the special prosecutor in Oakland when the case came across his desk. It was the killing of two people. Yeah, it was a gruesome crime. It was an execution kind of killing and double murder on Mother's Day in 1972. It was a high-profile case. Two men were executed, shot in the chest and the head during a drug robbery. Both of them were shot in the chest with 38s and their heads were blown off with sawed-off shotguns. I never was scared about this case because, hey, I know I didn't kill nobody. But John Taylor knew Aaron was his man, and he made it a personal goal to put him away for as long as possible. As a prosecutor, I either thought a defendant I was prosecuting was, in fact, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, or I didn't have to try it. And they marched us in the courtroom, and here comes Mr. Taylor the senior trial lawyer assigned to only these type of cases who never had lost a case. <laughs> he thought he was the cat's meow. You could tell the way he walked in that courtroom, you know. I knew that he was respected in that court. I didn't think in terms of putting away a dangerous guy or getting him off the streets. I would have said that had you asked me, but it was more about ego. He walked right up to me and he said, he said, it's all over, you know, like that. He said, you will be going down, you know, like that, and walked away. I said, whoa, this guy here is something else. Every day in trial, he would say something to me when he walked by. I would say things like, well, you know, I've been a prosecutor for uh, a bunch of years now. I'm doing well in this case. This case is going to result in a, a guilty verdict. They said, we, the jury, find Aaron Owens guilty of first-degree murder. They gave me the the maximum amount of time allowed by law, which meant I'd never get out. I was elated. I'm winning something big. I was in a daze, just numb. Aaron did hard time in Folsom Prison, but he was determined to win his freedom and spent his days at the prison law library. He tried to appeal his case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but he was denied. He looked for eight years for a way to prove his innocence. I went to a parole hearing one day, and that parole hearing, John was there to tell him, don't ever let me out, I'm a cold-blooded killer. And while we're waiting for the parole board to meet on the case, in a room that was divided in half by bars, on the other side of the bars was Aaron Owens. Hi, Aaron, hi, John. Then from behind the bars, Aaron simply told John the truth. That's it, huh? You convicted an innocent man. Your job didn't call for that. And he said, what the hell you say? He said, Aaron, save that for the 2,700 other prisoners in here who didn't do nothing, okay? I know what the evidence is. I know you did this. As I'm saying this to him, I, his eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I said, do you really believe I committed this crime? I thought he knew that I didn't commit the crime, but I also think that he's working with the system to put me away. I said, listen, this is 1980, California. We're not talking 1940, Alabama. No prosecutor I know would intentionally prosecute a case for any reason if he thought and believed the defendant in the case was not guilty. I said, I'm as good as a free man. If you believed all the time that I committed this crime, I know I could prove to you that I didn't. He said, well, do it. And I leave the hearing, and something's, really, something's bothering me. Something's really bothering me about 
him in, in this interview, and I can't figure out what it is. When I got home from this thing, I was sitting there, and I remember taking my tie off, and I said, this guy might be innocent. He knew when he left out that boardroom that I didn't do that. He said, I think I've made a mistake that I've always dreaded that I would make, and that is convicted an innocent man. This is a prosecutor with a conscience. This is a prosecutor who had, he said he had nightmares of convicting the wrong man. I was, as Tom Wolfe said, a master of the universe. Because I had so much control over people's lives, I was powerful. And I forgot, I, for, I didn't recognize that, and most prosecutors I don't think do. So John Taylor opened up an investigation into Aaron's case. I started realizing first that this, he could be innocent, and after a while he probably was innocent. I wrote a report saying this guy should be exonerated and out of prison. Before they got halfway through that uh, investigation, he said, we got an innocent, we got, a, we got an innocent man in that prison, you know. They had so much evidence that proved my innocence, it was a shame. Many of the deputy district attorneys in the DA's office were critical. They told him, said, no, let that rot. And John just told him, no, I can't do that. I can't do it. And he lost half of his friendship out of that department because they thought that he made him look bad. At my request, the charges were dismissed. He served about 10 and a half years in prison. And now John Taylor felt like he had a little making up to do. Next thing I know, I was inviting him to A's games. We just found out we had a lot in common and uh, we're best friends. And two people couldn't be as close as me and John. I think I felt a special obligation towards him uh, because of my feeling that I certainly owed him something. Well, yeah, he's a chronically late person. And so when we're meeting for something and he's late, I said, we're taking that off the years I cost you. <laughs> we're down, you know, we're down to 10 a quarter. Neither one of us talks about that stuff anymore because uh, we're both at peace with it, actually. He wants to talk to me just about every day. Every day, just about it, we'll take a ride and we go all the ball games, concerts, all this stuff together. And we sit out there and we drink uh, milkshakes and stuff. They call this the malt shop. The malt shop. What do I drink? Root beer float. That's right, with yogurt. That man knows. He better know. This is what we do all the time. Sit here and watch girls walk by. We don't do this wee stuff. I objectively look at passerby. <laughs> I do want the world to know that I love this man. I love you back. We want to thank both John and Aaron for coming into our studios. And it turns out we're lucky to have known Aaron at all. He told us that he would have been executed had California not had a moratorium on the death penalty at the time of his sentencing. You're listening to the It Wasn't Me episode, Strange Days, The Stories Do Not Stop. We've got the teacher of the year and the world's best haircut. Kinda. Coming up next, stay tuned. PRX and NPR, you're listening to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington, and as you know, in spite of all the bad things we as human beings do to each other, it is not uncommon. It is not uncommon at all for someone to take another's pain as their own, to place oneself in another's shoes. It's one of the greatest gifts we can offer. In short, someone to call snap, cynical, callous. Well, sometimes, sometimes you got to stand up and applaud the power of the human spirit. History, Every once in a while you meet a teacher who changes your life forever. 
For Eric, that teacher was Mr. X. I haven't had very many role models in my life, but I am fairly confident in saying that he was a very important one. He was the music teacher and the baseball coach. Eric even started an on-campus a cappella with this teacher. I was then a music major in college, you know, and I think that that's not unrelated to Mr. X and his impact on my life. With no parents around, few friends, socially awkward teenager, you can imagine how distraught Eric must have been to discover his role model was stricken with a terminal illness. He'd had cancer. In the second year when I was at the school, his cancer started back up again. He was obviously on chemotherapy and he lost all of his hair. He started taking a golf cart around and became pretty handicapped. The school community rallied around him with support. There was everything afforded to him that he needed in order to, you know, take time off from a class. There were classes that were canceled every now and then. Mr. X went through his illness with grace and charm. Eric remembers an inspirational speech he gave called, When Life Throws You a Curveball. Yeah, When Life Throws You a Curveball was a very motivational and emotional speech about a young cancer patient that he'd met while he himself was undergoing treatment. Eric's teacher told a story about a young boy named Mikey Green. Another student at the school at this time, Andrew, recalls the story he told. I just imagine them like lying in what in my imagination looked like dentist chairs sort of side by side. And Mikey Green, you know, is like, what's your story, buddy? And Mr. X is like, I have cancer. And then Mikey Green says, yeah, me too. But the kicker is I don't have enough money to pay for my treatments. And then Mr. X is justifiably concerned by this. So so what he does is he announces to the entire community that there is something that they can do to help this young child. They can help him pay for his treatments. He essentially solicited donations. The close-knit affluent community came to the rescue. They donated thousands to the cause. And there was a thing where everybody was supposed to wear green, and it would be a big Mikey Green support fest, and I think many thousands of dollars were raised for Mikey Green. While Mr. X continued to collect money on the young cancer patient's behalf, Eric was watching his mentor's health deteriorate. Then one day, the headmaster of the school called an assembly. I was pretty worried already before going to the auditorium because the courses that I was in with Mr. X had been canceled for about a week. Some, including Eric, feared the worst. I remember sort of sitting there thinking, what's about to happen? And the headmaster, kind of very matter-of-factly, all of you know Mr. X, and, you know, it's very upsetting, uh, but we found out that it's completely false. Mr. X didn't ever have cancer. Mr. X never played in the minor leagues. He's just a pathological liar who felt the need for his community to give to him and felt that he was a victim in some way and had invented all these stories. I felt like a man in a top hat at like a Wild West presentation, like, what the, Carolina, did you hear what I just heard? My word. You know, it was that kind of an atmosphere of just, my word. By the time of the assembly, Mr. X had already been escorted from campus and put on a plane. They found piles of cassette tapes and baseball cards in his room and understood where Mikey Green's money went. They told him never to come back. Psychologists were brought to the campus to help Eric and others talk through the big lie that they were told. I mean, it was about the conflict that I felt at having one of my role models and somebody I'd spent so much time with turn out to be a phony, an imposter. So it was, it was very hard to take. I led a pretty solitary life for a couple of weeks after that. How exactly Mr. X's lie was discovered is a mystery. The most popular rumor is that Mr. X sat down at the dining hall one day with a fellow teacher, started talking about his medication. This teacher recognized one of the names of the drugs because his own wife was suffering from real cancer and lupus. But the medication Mr. X said he was taking was for lupus, not for cancer. So the school decided to call up the hospitals and treatment centers Mr. X said he'd been going to. But nobody had ever heard of Mr. X. I'm sorry, that patient is not on our records. The most remarkable thing is that Mr. X is still teaching at a private school on the East Coast. The school said they knew about his past, but they went ahead and hired him anyway because apparently a good music teacher is hard to find. And apparently Mr. X was the best music teacher. I mean, that's the saddest part of the story is that I think that he was a great guy.
we'd like to thank Eric Morrell and Richard Park for sharing this story with The Snap. It was produced by Stephanie Fu and Jamie DeWolf. Now, did you ever know that guy? That guy who through no fault of his own, nothing ever quite worked out? I used to work at a telemarketing firm, bothering people who deserve better. And there was this dude who every single day he came in, it was a different adventure story. Someone had stolen his motorcycle, cops led him through a speed trap, scores of deer sprang into the highway right in front of him. Always, it wasn't me. It was the carnival of the elephants and all that kind of stuff during rush hour that led to my tardiness. You see, his was an exciting life. It was never his fault, truly. And there's a tribe of beings that walk around, a tribe that make a haircut, to make a haircut sound interesting. And our next guest, Richard Stockton, he's one of those people. It's 1989, I'm in Sacramento, and I'm performing at a comedy club. Now to get ready for this gig, I decide to get my hair done. I want an edgier look, and the beautician cuts it real short, spikes it out, and dyes it black. I put on eyeliner and mascara, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to look crazed. Before the gig, I go down to the restroom and get ready. I'm looking in the mirror, imagining I'm on stage laughs. I can see the crowd out there. You could say California Public Education's 49th in the nation, or you can say, thank God for Alabama. Showtime. I spin back towards the stairs to leave the restroom. There's these three guys blocking my way. Big guys. They're wearing cowboy hats and plaid shirts, and I look down, and they're grabbing my arms. Hey, I start jerking my arms up and down, and these guys are going up and down with me. I'm spinning them around the room, and I scream, police! And they go, yes. And I go, police! And they go, yes, police? And they go, yeah, we're undercover. And the guy shows me this badge on his belt, and he says, you've been positively identified as an armed robber. You are under arrest. Then they handcuff my hands behind my back, and they take me to an alley and put me up against a brick wall. And I said, I am the wrong person. I'm playing at comedy club here in front of hundreds of people all week long. Please check me out. The sergeant turns away and leads this woman in front of me. Mascara smeared, clearly been crying all day. And I'm looking at her and she's looking at me and she nods her head and said, yes, it's him people walk by they stare at me like I'm vermin one woman spits in my face a hand goes on the back of my head and I am pushed into the back of the cop car we get to the police station I am thrown into this holding tank and it has easily 30 men in it one of the walls is a window in which I can see my reflection oh my gosh I've got this spiky boy band hair. I got mascara and eyeliner on. I'm in jail. And then this behemoth, a six foot six inch skinhead steps in front of me. He has a swastika tattooed on one cheek. He has a scar across his forehead. He lifts his fist and rips my arrest form out of my hands. It says seven counts of armed robbery. You? You committed armed robbery seven times? And I shrug. Who keeps count? I could see them move away. Who is this weirdo? They thought I was crazy. I'm taken to my cell. My name's called, and I meet the investigating officer. He goes, okay. What happened? And I said, I know you got a positive ID, but you got the wrong guy. And he went, that's it? That's your defense? We've got the wrong guy? I'm a comic. I'm playing at Laughs Unlimited Comedy Club. I've been there all week. Please check my story out. So after two days, the sergeant comes back and meets with me and says, okay, I've checked you out. You are innocent. We got the bad guy. Here's his picture. See the resemblance? 
and I'm staring at this photograph and he has the same haircut I had that night. So finally I'm told that it's time for me to go. I go out through this big steel door and I'm let right out onto the sidewalk. The door slams behind me. I turn around and spit on the jail. And I go, yeah, you know, I guess my haircut does make me look dangerous. Big thanks to comedian Richard Stockton. You can find out more about his world at truefictionradio.net. Big thanks to Pat and C.D. Miller for producing that piece. And now, it's almost that time. Almost, but not quite. Don't fret and don't frown. The Snap Universe awaits yours for the asking. Full episodes, music, movies, all that. Snapjudgment.org. Hit us up on the Facebook, the Twitter. Find out when Snap Live is coming to your town. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the funkiest functures and functum. Please give it up for the Dr. Jekyll to my Mr. Hyde, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna Look Both Ways, Sussman. Stephanie No Tattoos, Fool. Rita Daniels Knows the Score. Will Urbina Does Not. Jamie DeWolf, Shiny and New, and the Bad Boys of the Beatbox. Pat McCD Miller and Renzo Goria. Now, you know that super toned, tan, nice looking lotion, that fine thing you saw at the beach, yeah? Well, that is not the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but much love to the CPB. PRX, it's like one of those masks you see in old-timey museums. When one side of the face is one thing, the other side is something else. Public on the left, media on the right, zip it together, and you've got the public radio exchange. PRX.org. You know this is not the news, right? This ain't the news. In fact, you could make a robot replica of yourself. Design it so well that no one can tell you apart. Send the imposter in to fool your family and friends and realize they are not just fooled. They like him better. Yeah, you could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.